Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at Whit Riverside. This week our speaker is Danielle Pathak. Uh, Danielle is a pastor at Mar High Vineyard in Denver with her husband Jay. And in today's talk, Daniel talks about the importance of revisiting our identity throughout our lives and our circumstances. So we hope today's talk really encourages you, regardless of what circumstances you're currently facing, we hope this talk builds you up and really inspires you to go deeper with God. What is your identity? We're going to talk about identity. Identity is something that is formed as little people. I was watching this morning, I was sitting behind the most precious little baby. I don't even know if she's still in the room. The most precious little baby that fell asleep on her daddy and she had her little arms wrapped around his neck, safe and secure, like unbelievably cozy. And she fell asleep and I pointed to my husband. I'm like, that is the sweetest little thing in the world because you've got, you know, like the example of what I want to talk about here about the sense of identity that starts to get formed when we're tiny little creatures, you know, even months old. It's who we are. It's, it's kind of who we're meant to be. It's what we're designed to give this world. And for me, uh, that started pretty young. I imagine, or excuse me, I, I actually can imagine myself as a little girl because when I see pictures of myself as a little girl, this is what I see. You got it for me? This is what I see. I was not one person. I was two people. I was two people. There was a little girl that looked exactly like me that was born the same time that I was. I was an identical twin girl. Now, I know, it's kind of a little freakish, okay? Like, when you look at that picture, I can't even tell which one I am, actually. Seriously, my mom, I don't even know if she can, actually. I mean, we just looked exactly the same. And my mom dressed us the same, and people just called us by each other's names. And, I mean, imagine what it would be like to grow up in a life where people were never sure who you were. (laughs) <laughs> where you just got used to not only answering your own name, but your sister's name. And then you wanted to protect the sense of dignity of the other person that made the mistake. And so you would just take it on to be like, oh, no, 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 don't you feel bad that you made a mistake? Don't you feel bad? So you just kind of would respond to two different names. It happens to this day, but you respond to two different names you kind of act like you, I mean, we, we to this point, I mean, we'll act like, you know, the other person and, and, and somebody will ask me about my boys, but I don't really have boys. I've got girls and I don't care because I'll just say that my boys are fine and you just do it, right? Because that is just what happens when you are born as an identical twin. I even had a grandma and she, I like to, um, to oh, she wasn't the best grandma. Okay. She wasn't the best. She wasn't a nice person, quite honestly. She was the kind of grumpy grandma and I have a good grandma, but the grumpy grandma, she would, she would look at us and just say, sisters that look alike, sisters that look alike, come here. And no joke. Like she couldn't even call us by our names. I don't know. But sisters that look alike, come here. And we'd be like, okay. You know, and we'd come running over and we'd come sitting with her and talking with her. I 
realize now, as a 41-year-old woman, the profound effects that that had on me, developmentally, kind of the way that I aged into adolescence, the way I aged into young adulthood. Now, my story is very individual, and hopefully you'll see little pieces that you can identify with, but that had profound effect on me, the thought of that I did not have a lot of significance, that I didn't have a lot of identity, that nobody really knew who I was and nobody really cared who specifically God made me to be, had really profound effects. I mean, I I remember wrestling with it, you know, especially in my late adolescence and kind of teenage years, just really wrestling through because, you know, I think that everybody, whether you're a man or woman, everybody has a deep desire for significance, to be seen, to be known, And we try to figure that out in so many different ways, don't we? I mean, we try to figure that out not only within our own family of origin and the way that we were raised, which, by the way, is very profound. I mean, we are, we start off as, as little tiny human beings. We start off, you know, adopting identities, being pushed into identities. We have roles that we take on. Um, in our family of origins. But then, you know, once we start getting a little bit more independent, you know, we, we, we start to look at, you know, what am I actually good at? And what sports do I love to do? Am I an artist? Like, what are the things that I'm really talented at? And we, and we start to be known by, by that attribute. Now think about your own life. What were you growing up? How did you identify? Were you the oldest? Were you the baby of the family? Were you the one that just got everything that they wanted? Were you the one that could dream for the stars and just made something happen? Were you the one that was known by kind of their athletic like abilities and you could just play whatever you wanted to play? Or were you the one that just got left out of everything? Were you the one that was positive? Were you the one that was a little bit more melancholy? You see, all the, I mean, I could go on and on all day long, but those things matter. It's the way that you actually see yourself. It's the way that you perceive that other people see you. Now, as we think about identity, as we start to form identity, what's so interesting in the way that we form as actually human beings is that that is is actually spoken to you, and it's in your mind, the way that you actually think about yourself. It's very repetitive, it happens over and over and over again. So for example, if you're looking and you kind of see yourself in a certain way, you see yourself as a procrastinator. Anybody procrastinate in here? Okay, so we have a few procrastinators. You start to see yourself. It, that usually comes because somebody has either pointed that out in you, made observations about your own life, or you felt the effects actually of procrastinating, right? Of putting things off. You start to feel the effects of it and you start to think, okay, this isn't like the best way to live, but this is kind of who I am. This is what my personality, my temperament, I mean, this is just kind of what has happened. That starts to deeply embed itself, not only in your cognitive kind of resources, but it deeply embeds itself in the way that you actually feel about yourself, right? I mean, there's no way that it can't. So when we talk about identity, you know, we would love to, I mean, I would love to act like it's a very positive thing, you know, that all of us have very positive, very glorious, very, very uplifting kind of identities that we all walk into a room like this and we feel confident. 
We feel like we are successful in life. We feel that everybody loves us and we love ourselves. But, but I know that, that when I talk about identity, this can be a deeply painful place, a place of deep, deep insecurity to where the ways that you have seen yourself, the ways that maybe you try not to see yourself, the ways that other people have observed you or given you chances or not given you chances in this life, that that actually can be deeply, deeply painful. Now, as a formation pastor, and, and honestly, I don't even really know what that means. I think that we all are formation people. <laughs> you know, I just for some reason have that title, but, but, but basically I'm just really interested in the spiritual journey. So in our churches, providing consistent space for people to be able to pause and reflect is actually becoming one of the most passionate things in my life. It really is. I mean, we live in cultures that press you to the very edges of your margin, of your time, of your resource. The last thing that we give ourselves is the gift of reflection, the gift of time, the gift of space, the gift of silence and solitude, because Quite honestly, I mean, what I've observed is that when we give ourselves that gift, it doesn't feel like a gift, first of all. It does not feel like a gift. It feels like an inconvenience. It's very unproductive at first. It doesn't feel very productive. And the reason why it doesn't feel like very much of a gift is because when we sit and we provide that space for ourselves and we decide, okay, God, I need to be by myself. I need to be a little bit more reflective. I need to see kind of why I'm acting the way that I'm acting. I want to actually look at things as such as identity. The sense of anxiety that starts to rise up, anxiety, fear, panic. I don't really like what's really happening. I, I, I like to perform and I don't like this, uh, this, this space of actually just sitting and not performing. I like to be active, and this feels very passive. I like to feel like I'm winning, and this does not feel like I'm winning. Do you, I mean, have you ever had this experience before? I mean, this is usually, in my experience, this is usually why people avoid these spaces of reflection. Because what starts to bubble up to the surface, at least at first, are things that are a little bit more unattractive to be able to look at. Now... Is that all that's there? No. I would, I would make the strong case that if you can sit and wait, if you can sit and be patient, that the things that come up to the surface that completely scare us at first, that they do go away, that when we have the courage to be able to sit in a moment, to be able to have the Lord look at us and speak to us and start to clear some of the debris and some of the clutter out of our own lives, the sweet things start to happen like sweet things, the most beautiful of things. It's the whispers of the Lord when he starts to look at you and go, you are so much more than what you give yourself credit for. You are so much more than who walks in on a Sunday morning. You are so much more than your intellect, than your heart, than your compassion. You're so much more than the amount of people that fill your rooms. You are so much more than that. But... You see, what I'm talking about right there, it takes a lot of patience. It's a spiritual practice. You actually have to sit in that moment. You have to hold on to the seat. <laughs> Oftentimes, you have to force yourself, okay, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, maybe half a day. Maybe I will 
dare to do a retreat, dare to get away, to sit and wait to see what the Lord actually wants to speak. Now, I have found in my own life, in this life of a girl that has found a life message and speaking about identity to people because of our own story about being an identical twin and not having a lot of people do that for me, I have found that identity is something that we must go back to over and over and over again. We must, in this spiritual journey, we must have regular moments of reflection and pondering and sorting through and confession and laying down over and over and over again. And I've also found that in moments of crisis, number one, and in moments of calling, number two, that that's when identity gets ruffled. That's when it starts to shake. It's like the earth ground, or the earthquake starts to shake the ground and people start to have to look at who am I? What am I doing here? What do I have to give to the world? That's when God does the deepest of work in terms of crisis and then in terms of calling. Now, granted, I'm sure that there's lots of other spaces that God does on identity work, but I think especially for this. So with all that said, though, with all that said, this is the perfect time to be able to talk about identity for all of you. Because we'll, get, we'll hear later. We're going to hear later about corporate identity, about what God is actually calling you as a people, what he is calling to you as a future, and how you can be a part of it. But for this afternoon, could we actually talk about the personal self-identity work that we all have to do as pastors and leaders? Is that good? Okay. What we're going to do today, um, I would love to look at the story of Moses. It's a story that we've heard a million times. I'm actually not even going to read it. I'm going to paraphrase it for you because we've all read it. It's Exodus 3 and 4. We're going to talk about the calling of Moses. You like that story? The burning bush. Who heard that when you were like tiny? I mean, I remember like sitting in Sunday school. I had this beautiful little book of like pictures. And I remember staring at that picture of Moses in the burning bush staring at it, trying to imagine what would it be like if God chose me to talk to you in that way, in that incredibly miraculous, amazing way? What would that be like? Like, how would I react? Because what we can tell up to this moment is that Moses is in complete crisis up to this point. Complete crisis. He is on the run. I mean, how many people in the scriptures do we see that God speaks to you in the midst of being on the run, running away from God, running away from their mistakes, running away from consequences? They're scared. They're fearful. They're trying to hide. And that's exactly what Moses is doing. He's doing that. And he's doing it in a really, you know, like, like really interesting way. I mean, he's run from Pharaoh. He's run from the courts. He's run from his life of privilege. He's run from this really interesting story of being saved. He's run from his mistakes of having a justice heart that got out of control. And he ends up killing somebody, committing, committing the act of murder. And he is running away because he is caught and he is going to be held to account. So he runs away, and he lives in the desert, and he is a shepherd, and he is lonely, and he has nothing to lean on. He has no identity left, and so he's in this really interesting moment like where he is trying to figure it out, and he's trying to to figure out basically like what's his life supposed to look like? 
What is he being called to next? Now, I, I, I will guess to, I will guess when I actually think about Moses in the desert, shepherding, meeting his wife, like just trying to figure out this new life. I would guess that there's a great sense of loneliness, a great sense of disorientation. And I like that word disorientation because I don't feel like we use it enough that in the spiritual journey, the disorientation is not a bad thing. There are, some of you here right now that have walked into this space and you are in great spaces, great stages of disorientation where your faith that you adopted and that you've had and that you've clung to and that you have, you know, it's been very close to who you are, your faith, the way that you see God, it is being shaken to the core. Something has happened Maybe something that has happened to you or to people that you love, people that are around you. You are in great space of disorientation. It means you can't see straight. What you have thought was firm is not firm anymore. And let me just say, let me just say to you, God can do incredible things when you are disoriented. Incredible things. The things that you cling to and that you think that are really secure the things that you hold on to and you're like, yes, this is who I am. This is what I know. That assurity, when that is lost, God can get in there and do miracles. He really can. Have you ever seen that in your own life? Have you ever seen that? I remember when I was in my mid-20s, um, my husband and I, we'd been married for a while and, um, because we got married really young. We just found each other really young. And so we had been married for a while and we had just had that conversation about having kids and, and kind of entering into that next stage, right? It's so interesting because, I mean, you know, uh, those of you that are married, you know that like once you get engaged, people are trying to push you into that next stage, right? You know, like, when are you going to get married? You know, and you go into being married. And then once you're married, people are like, when are you going to have babies? You know, then when's the next one? And so you're always being kind of pushed into that next stage, right? So it takes a lot of thought and intentionality to be like, okay, are we satisfied with the stage that we're in? And are we not going to let people kind of push us in to a stage before we're ready. And so we had that conversation. It was our five-year anniversary. We were actually over in Scotland and we were sitting in a little cafe and we were talking about the past five years. And then we start talking about the next five years. We start talking about, okay, let's just wait like a little bit longer to have kids and we're not ready. We're not grown up enough. And, you know, we just started this church plant and we had enough going on, enough drama, craziness, that sort of thing. And before you know it, I mean, we, we get back home. We got pregnant on that trip. I don't, it's like, I don't know. I don't know. I kind of act like I don't know how that happened, but yeah, whatever. So we got pregnant on the trip. It was all the wine. That's usually what I tell people, okay? It was all the wine. We had a lot of wine over there in England and Scotland. So anyways, lots of stuff going on. So anyways, we come back. I am sick, 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 right? What's interesting is that my reaction, finding out that we were pregnant, oh my goodness, my reaction, I burst into tears. Burst into tears. I mean, boohooing, sobbing. I mean, it was just like the end of the world, right? Not the, not the moment that you imagine, not the moment that you want to tell your children, right? Growing up, like, oh yeah, when I found out I was pregnant with you, I burst into tears because I was so sad. 
So sad, imagining my whole life was going to change and all the things I was going to give up and, and the way that, that my energy was going to be divided. And we were trying to do ministry and we had moved across the states to do this church plant. And all of a sudden, I've got this other thing on my plate that feels incredibly overwhelming. And I don't know how God is actually going to give me the resources to be able to do it. It was one of the most disorienting times in my faith journey because I didn't understand what God was doing. I really didn't. I had a friend one time tell me, um, it, it actually makes sense when I look back, she said, her name is Fran, and she said, listen, it's in these moments of disorientation, you can imagine yourself driving a car, if you can just put it in neutral, do not put it in reverse. You will not go forward, first of all. That's like without, you will not go forward and disorientate. If you try to go forward, you will blow up your life. Just sit there in neutral and let God do his thing. Let him carve out deep places inside of your heart. Let him heal you in the deepest of places. Let him restore and redeem where you have forgotten that he can even do that. You just park it into neutral because if you put it into reverse and you start making big decisions, big decisions about your life and about faith and about God, you will pay for that and you will work through that for the rest of your life. So it's in those moments of disorientation, which we see Moses in right here, that he is there. He's not moving forward. He's not moving back. He is in neutral and he is waiting. And there is one day that changes his entire life. It's a day that there's a bush that decides to burn without reason. And we have no idea how that even happened because it was so incredibly miraculous. And I love the fact that, that, that as he's staring at this bush, which we all have read in the scriptures, as he's staring at this bush, like, what is happening? That God actually has to say, Moses, come here. Moses, come here. And you can imagine him kind of stumbling and like wandering and his mind is trying to grasp, like, what am I actually seeing? And then he he has a phrase in the scriptures that he says that oftentimes I see the most kind of open people in the scriptures say, they just say, here I am. Here I am. It's like Samuel as a little boy, like Eli just saying, just say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. You see it with David. You see it with Elijah. I mean, you just see it throughout the scriptures. They just go, here I am, because oftentimes that's all that you need to say. Here I am. I'm open. (laughs) I'm open, Lord. Now, did he know what was coming? Of course he didn't know what was coming. But I love the posture of his heart. And I love the fact that that's all that he had to do. He had just had to take off his shoes, enter into the presence of God, and just say, God, do what you do. Do what you may. Reveal yourself in new ways. And this is where the most interesting parts start to happen. Because this is what is known as the calling of Moses. Where God calls him to things that are so outside of his imagination, that are so big and so extraordinary, and so never been done before. And what you see in that moment is not necessarily a man that goes, yes, I am all for it. I am ready to go. I am the right person. You have chosen well. I mean, you do not see a man that does that, right? He stays in the moment because he's just, here I am. He stays in the moment and he lets all the insecurities surface. Do you ever have moments like that? (laughs) Where you just allow yourself to be insecure just for a moment? And you just allow yourself. It's the moments that I was talking about earlier when we're in those moments of sacred space where we can just go, okay, 
can God handle the fear and the insecurity that I feel right now is he is calling me to something bigger. Is he is putting his finger on this really tender part of my identity and he's saying, I need this to shift and change. For the sake of your freedom, I need this to shift and change. Have we ever had that moment before? Where we sit there and we go, okay, I will vocalize and let these insecurities come up to the surface, trusting that God will meet me in my insecurity and they will not swallow me. Because that's really what Moses does right here. And so let's just look at them for a moment. Let's just look at these. Because I think that these are really interesting. And I think that for those of us that are really taking our identity, our sense of calling, like how do we belong in this room? Like where is our future? And like what does God want, actually want to do with it? I think that we're going to find one of, one of these, these kind of excuses, one, one of these kind of insecurities. We're going to find it in our own story. I think we will. And I think we're going to have some really beautiful moments to repent, to be able to acknowledge that this is what the Lord is doing right now. This is what he's speaking. I think the Lord will speak. So let's just look at the first one. You've got Moses. He's being called. God's actually looking at him going, Moses, I have something for you. I'm going to do something that nobody's ever done before. I'm going to release the Israelites, the Hebrew people, into their own land. I'm going to get them out of Pharaoh's grip. And I'm going to use you. And you are my person. I'm going to use you. And what is the first thing that he says? We look at chapter 311. You guys can look this up later. Again, I'm paraphrasing this all for you. His first response when God starts to reveal calling to him, starts to tell him, this is what I've designed your whole life to be. His first response is, who am I? Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? I can imagine that Moses' first thought as he examined his life in that moment and thought, who am I to be chosen to be able to do something like this? Who am I to be able to lead at such a significant level? You don't understand what I have done in my life. You do not understand the things that I have done. You don't understand I have the ways I have given up my integrity. You don't understand what a poor leader I was, how I can't control my anger, my temper, my emotions. You don't, under, you don't even understand my, the upbringing of my birth and how I didn't have consistent family and how I might have struggled with if I was loved and accepted and that sort of thing. Who am I? How many times have you ever thought that? Because, I mean, that's like a consistent thought in my life. Like, who am I? Who am I? I'm like a girl that has, like, struggled her whole life trying to figure out, like, who she is. I'm like a girl that, like, you know, like, I can point to several moments of, like, really, um, you know, sad moments in her life where she had to, like, grieve over her tragic family. Who am I that, you know, and you can just start to, to weave this, 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 this story of your life where it's highlighted by tragedy and crisis and your mistakes and your sin and the sins that were done against you. I know that for me, one of the most beautiful things that I can do when I sit by myself with God is to ask God to get my eyes off of myself. We have such a tendency 
as humans, as broken people, to just become incredibly navel-gazing human beings where we cannot even remotely imagine. Our imaginations are so shut down for how God can use us, how he can redeem us, how he can take the, the, the things that we have done, the leadership decisions that we have incredibly screwed up, the people that we have not served, that we've probably hurt more than served, the ways that we have preached heresy instead of truth, the way that we have screwed up our families and our kids are a mess, the ways that we look at our marriages and we look and say, there's got to be so much more, but I don't know how to get there. There's got to be ways that the Lord can take our eyes off of ourself and that gut insecurity, like who am I to be a part of this? And have it so that we can meet him and we can look him gaze to gaze. I remember, I just recently have remembered this, that on my wedding day, I was so young and so overwhelmed and there's all these people looking at me and I was not the type of person that would be like, look at me. Like I just, I mean, it was just so overwhelming and I get there and I get down the aisle and I'm standing in front of my husband and I'm just, I mean, we're, we're staring at each other or we're, we're standing in front of each other and all I could do is just look down. I mean, I'm just looking down. I'm like basically looking at like his belly button or, you know, his shoes. Like I'm just looking down like the whole time and our pastor's like trying to do this ceremony and all I can do is like look down I was so overwhelmed because I was just like, everybody is looking, you know, whatever. I just was so overwhelmed, right? And all of a sudden, I remember my husband whispering to me. And he's like, look up, Danielle. Look up, look up. Look at me. Look at me. And it's like, at first, it's like jolted me out of like whatever was going on. And I, and I look at him. And when I looked him in the eyes and I saw how much love that he had in that moment, now, see, that is a beautiful moment, but it, it doesn't even compare to what the God does. It doesn't compare to the moments where we look in God's eyes and we look in his face and he looks at us and say, I have your life. I have your life. I can redeem things that you have given up on. I have redeemed things. I have redeemed things. I will make new what you think has been lost. God does not waste your pain. When I was younger, there, there was a book that we would read in English, and I don't even know if we read it still in the States, but it was something that was just part of our curriculum called The Scarlet Letter. Nathaniel Hawthorne, and he wrote this book about puritanical kind of East Coast. And he wrote this book, and it revolved around the themes of like sin and repentance and that sort of thing. It was a really interesting book. But the opening scene, have you guys ever heard of this book? Yeah, some of you. But the opening scene, and this has been such a poignant scene. I've remembered this over the years. I think it has an incredible spiritual kind of application to it. But the opening scene is a woman that's standing on the blocks, and she's standing in front of her entire town. And she's being forced to put a, a, a sew something onto the front of her, her dress. She's been caught in adultery. Her name is Hester Prynne, and she's been caught in adultery. Now, the book does not deal actually with the man that was caught in adultery until much later on in the book, which is really interesting. But they caught the woman. She had a baby, and they wanted to mark her for the rest of her life in this society. And the way that the society thought best to be able to do it was not just to ostracize her from the community, but to put a public red letter that was on the front of her dress. 
And so the whole book deals, it's such a fascinating book because the whole book deals with her, you know, going into town and being with people and, and always having the scarlet letter on the front. A for adultery. Now the book goes on and on. It talks about kind of like what happens in her life. But the part that has been so mesmerizing for me in that story is that it was such a picture of what happens to us along this journey that we take on these scarlet letters, that we take on these things that become such a part of our identity and kind of like, this is who we are and this is just what's happened to us. And they mark us, they shape us, they form us. It makes it so that, that, that we feel that nobody can even look at us unless they look through what we have been a part of and what we have allowed to happen to us. And this is just the way that I see myself. Now, when I say it like this, it's like, how could anybody allow that to happen? You know, like, I mean, really? Do people really allow that to happen? Moses did. Moses did. Because this was the first thing that he said to God. It's like he had to remind him of all the mistakes. When we sit with Jesus, if one of the most consistent things that we do is ask for God to show us mercy, to keep showing us what it's like to experience grace and forgiveness, then that's a sweet life with Jesus. Hope you enjoyed that talk. Wasn't it fascinating to hear about how being an identical twin impacted Danielle's view of herself from a very young age? I think we all struggle at some level with how others see us and how we maybe see ourselves. As Danielle said, we take on roles and expectations and opinions and these shape our identity for good and bad. So how do you think about yourself today? Do you have a positive self-view or maybe you just see the gaps or where you feel you don't measure up? Danielle encouraged us to regularly take time to pause and reflect, to wait for those whispers of God to begin to speak life and love to us. She describes Moses being in a great space of disorientation and I love the advice of her friend who said in these times of disorientation we should put the car in neutral and not into reverse. Maybe you're feeling really disorientated at the moment in this current crisis. Maybe you feel as if you've been in reverse and that your relationship with God has maybe broken down in this time of great shaking. Well, I want to encourage you today to put yourself in neutral and come aside with God. Give him space and time. Give him your fears and your insecurities and allow him to fill you with his love and speak his true identity into you. And as Danielle said, hold the chair if you have to. Sit and wait for God and hear what he wants to say to you. If you don't know Jesus, you can still do that. You can still take time out to sit with God and listen to him. Maybe just start with 10 minutes. And if you'd like to know more or you want to chat with somebody, then contact us via our website. We have a, a form that you can fill in or maybe call the office. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you that you love me so much. Lord, in this season, please help me to trust you and that you are with me whatever life brings. I want to surrender to your will today. Please give me a fresh infilling of your love and presence and help me know who I am and to hold on to the true identity that comes from you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. 
if you'd like to contact us about this talk. To hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.